0: our Savior again, and His resurrection from the dead. We thank You for Your Word, which testifies of that. It is the eyewitness testimony of what You have done in Your Son. And raising Him from the dead, we pray now that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things about Christ, who He is and what He has done, and that You would be glorified by giving us hearts that are ready to obey You and to trust You this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Today is Resurrection Sunday, and so this is the the week or the Sunday of the year when we sort of uniquely focus upon the implications, the truth of the resurrection, the implications of that truth. Um, truly, Christianity hinges upon the doctrine of the resurrection, for if the resurrection is not true, then Christianity really is a laughable joke. I mean, if you want all of Christianity to come crumbling down, you simply have to disprove the resurrection. Uh, produce a body, produce a grave with a body, produce some bones, find some way to explain why the tomb was empty, why the disciples saw the risen Christ, what happened to the body. If you're able to do that, then all of Christianity just becomes something you throw onto the dustbin of history because it is truly a laughable joke. It's it's foolishness, wicked foolishness. And on top of that, those who believe it really are the, the biggest and the greatest of fools. That's why Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, then we, we, not only the apostles, but all those who have believed their teaching and their testimony, we are of all men most to be pitied. You're here on a Sunday morning. Did you see how beautiful it was when you walked in here? And you are here to celebrate the resurrection and the raised Christ. I mean, look, if the resurrection is not true, then you you need to get up and go out and enjoy the sunshine. There are better things to do with your time than to be here listening to this nonsense. But listen, if the resurrection is true, and by resurrection I don't mean a spiritual resurrection, something happened in the hearts of his followers just to make them feel better. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, died on a cross, and rose again three days later. If that is true, as history testifies, as eyewitnesses bore testimony to that, if that is true, then the implications are enormous. The implications are more far-reaching than any event in the history of humanity. Today might be the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, or specifically focus in on that, but we would be fools to think that all of the significance of that event could be could be captured in the celebration of one day, right? So in one sense, this is a unique day. But in another sense, this is an ordinary Sunday because every Sunday really is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. That's why we meet on Sunday instead of Saturday. It is the Lord's Day. He rose from the dead, so this is His day. And every time we gather together on a Sunday morning to celebrate and to fellowship and to worship and to hear preaching and to read the Word of God, we are celebrating the resurrection. We are giving acknowledgement to that truth that that is why we are here, because this is the Lord's Day. So in one sense, today is very unique, and in another sense, today is very ordinary. So I want to focus on the uniqueness of it, but in another sense, this is just going to be an ordinary Sunday. There's no bells and whistles, there's no drama, there's nothing else that I can do for you here this morning, other than to simply do what I do every Sunday, and that is to continue what we've been doing as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John. On days like this, in Christmas time, I always have an option. I can I can do a sermon or a message that is outside of our normal course of study as we've been working through whatever book that we're in. And sometimes I do that when what we're working through really doesn't lend itself to connecting it to the theme that is on everybody's minds. The other option is to find something in our text, or as we're working our way through the book, to sort of structure it in a way that the very next passage has to do with kind of what we're talking about. I'm opting for the latter. So we're going to be back in John 9. So I want you to open your Bibles to the book of John, the ninth chapter, and we're going to continue with this story of the man born blind. There is something in our text for this morning that we're looking at, following what we did last week, that directly connects to this doctrine of the resurrection and its significance and its implications. And you'll see this as we're going through. John chapter 9, and we're going to be looking today at verses 35 through 41, verses 35 through 41, and we're actually only going to get to the end of verse 38, and we'll finish up this chapter next Sunday. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him, that is the man born blind, out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who, may see, who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Now I realize that there are a number of people here that are new. You haven't been with us as we've been going through John 9. So for your sake, I want to jump back and sort of catch the context real quick. And this will be quick for the sake of those of you who have been through this for the last 12 weeks. Back in John 8, verse 24, verse 28, John 8:58, Jesus claimed to be the I am, God in human flesh. The Jews picked up stones. They understood exactly what he was claiming. They picked up stones to stone him. As Jesus hid himself and made his way out of the temple, he saw a man there who was born blind. And Jesus intentionally did a miracle on that man to demonstrate two things. To demonstrate that he is God, as per his claims in John 8, and to demonstrate that he was the long-awaited Messiah. So he found this man and he answered the disciples' questions about his congenital blindness. And then Jesus took spit and and dust and he made clay. He anointed the man's eyes and he said to the man, go to the pool of Siloam, wash in the pool of Siloam. The man did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He went to the pool, he washed, and he came back seeing. Following that miracle comes a series of inquisitions. This, Since it happened on a Sabbath, on a a day when none of that type of work should have been done, done according to the pharisées this created quite a lot of theological consternation among the leaders of the Jews and so they brought in the man and then his parents and then the man again to inquire as to how this miracle had taken place so they brought the man in they asked him a series of questions who made your eyes uh, who made your eyes to see and how did it happen the man answered their questions they didn't get very far with that so then they're trying to find a way to discredit Jesus or the miracle or the man who was born blind so they then come up with this wild speculative notion that the man was never really blind to begin with. The whole thing was was faked or a, a forgery, a fraud, or whatever. So they bring the man's parents in and ask the man's parents, and the man's parents really didn't want to get into the fray. They didn't get very far with the man's parents, so they decide to go for round two and bring the man in for the second round of questioning. That was their key mistake, because in round two, the man turned the tables on them, used a very simple argument to demonstrate that if Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was not from God, he could not do the miracle. He did the miracle, therefore he is from God. That was the conclusion. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, did not like the fact that they had been bested by this poor blind beggar in sort of this conversation about Jesus and how the man now sees. So they did two things. They slandered him, they called him a sinner, and they silenced him by kicking him out of the synagogue. That brings us up now to verse 35. Up until this point, Jesus has been, after the miracle, entirely out of the narrative. Now, for the first time, the man who has been born blind gets to see the man who made him see. He now gets to see his healer for the very first time. Verse 35. As we go through this, by the way, we're going to go through verse 35 through 38. We can kind of deal with this under three headings. First, there are questions, verses 35, 36. Then answers, 37 and 38. And then a response. Questions, answers, and a response. Now, I realize that is not the most creative outline you've ever heard me come up with. But it works, and it's really demonstrable from the text. Questions, answers, and a response. Notice the questions in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now that's the question. You'll notice that Jesus asked him a question, then the man asked Jesus a question, then Jesus is going to answer the man's question, the man is going to answer Jesus' question, and then we see the man's response once he has a full understanding of what has gone on. So verse 35 is the question. Questions. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. Now, John doesn't say that Jesus was seeking for him, but he certainly intends for us to understand that Jesus was seeking out this man, right? He was. He found the man. Jesus heard that the man had been kicked out of the synagogue. When they kicked him out of the synagogue, they were excluding him from the religious, the spiritual, the social life of the Jewish people. And this was a serious thing, a significant thing, second only in severity to death itself for a Jew. And Jesus heard that this had happened. How did Jesus hear that it had happened? Likely word had circulated. It was an official thing. The Jews, when they put somebody out of the synagogue, they would publish something like this so that everybody would know about it. Everybody would hear about it. Word would eventually get back. Everybody was talking about the miracles. The man's neighbors have been talking. The man's parents have been talking. The man can see. He's no longer at the temple gate. Word was getting around. Well, word also got around, not just about the miracle, but word was getting around about this man being excluded from the synagogue. And Jesus heard about it, maybe through one of his disciples, maybe through someone in the crowd, maybe he just overheard it in the temple. Hey, did you notice that the blind man is no longer at the temple gate begging for money? Really, what happened to him? Well, he was healed and the Pharisees kicked him out of the synagogue. Maybe Jesus just overheard it. He heard about the blind man and then he sought him out and he found him. Now I want you to notice two things there. First, that is indicative of divine initiative. This whole passage screams divine initiative. It is God who is the one who seeks out sinners. It is not sinners who seek out God. This whole miracle really is a tale of divine initiative. It's Jesus who saw the man. It is Jesus who approached the man. It is Jesus who healed the man. It is Jesus who instructed the man. And now he has heard that he's been kicked out of the synagogue. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he finds the man again. Listen, this is our God. Our God is a seeking God. He seeks after sinners. He pursues sinners. If you are saved today, it is because God has pursued you and he sought you. Unbelieving men do not seek after God. Unbelieving men do not pursue God. Unbelieving men don't seek after God any more than cockroaches seek after sunlight, because they love darkness and they hate light. It is God who must pursue sinners. No man seeks after God, the Scripture says, but it is God who seeks sinners to save them. Not only is this a statement of divine initiative, it is a statement of divine compassion. Here was a man, the very first recorded martyr, to be kicked out of the synagogue for the sake of Jesus, And what does Jesus do? He hears about this man, and he goes to the man. See, the sufferings of God's people are never distant from God. God knows it, he cares about it, he sees it, and he feels it. The persecution that comes against Christ's church comes against Christ himself. And Jesus is aware of it, and he, today, he sends the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Here, Jesus went and he sought this man out. Hearing that he'd been kicked out of the synagogue, he sought out this man. And I think that there is The purpose of this seeking out was not just to reveal himself more fully to the man. But listen, the purpose of him seeking out this man was to bring some consolation and comfort to this man so that this man could see, finally, the person who made him to see. That is God's initiative. God is the one who takes that and takes initiative in seeking out sinners. And you notice that this is also divine compassion. So Jesus asked him in verse 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, if you're reading a King James or New King James translation, you will notice that it says, do you believe in the Son of God instead of Son of Man? So it's a different translation there. Ultimately, whether it re- should read Son of Man or Son of God comes down to which sort of philosophy you take as to which manuscripts you're going to go with because there is a manuscript difference between in ver- this verse between Son of God and Son of Man. I would lean towards Son of Man because I think it, uh, it probably has the better manuscript evidence that goes with that. But listen, ultimately... The question of whether it should read Son of God or Son of Man does not theologically matter in the end, and here's why. Both the titles Son of God and Son of Man, both of those titles are titles that Jesus has used of himself on multiple other occasions, and both of those titles are titles of divinity. Whether it is Son of Man or Son of God, you are speaking of a title that belongs to a divine person. The title Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it's actually used 13 times in John's Gospel. Jesus uses that title of Himself more than any other title in the four Gospels. In fact, He uses it of Himself 80 different times in the four Gospels, 13 of them in the Gospel of John. And we're going to take some time, when we have some time, to go through all of the references in the Gospel of John. In fact, it's not going to be too far away. It's John chapter 12, where we're going to really zero in and ask ourselves the question, What does the title Son of Man, what is the full significance behind that? And we're going to go back into the Old Testament and look at how Jesus uses it in the New Testament. But for today, here's what you need to know about the title Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel saw in a vision somebody, a figure whom he describes as the Son of Man, receiving a kingdom. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here's what Daniel sees. He sees the Ancient of Days, who is obviously God the Father, He sees the Ancient of Days and one being presented before the Ancient of Days, who is like the Son of Man. It is a title of this divine person. And to this Son of Man, the Ancient of Days gives glory and dominion and a kingdom and the obedience of all the nations. All of that is presented to this Son of Man. It is the Father giving a kingdom to this Son of Man. The Jews regarded the Son of Man as being a title of divinity. Ezekiel used it of himself, but in a different way. When it is used of Jesus, it speaks of not only his humanity, Son of Man, but also it harkens back to what we find about the Son of Man in the Old Testament, that he is a divine person. So when Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He may as well have asked him, do you believe in that Messiah, that King, that Son of David, that one who is going to be given a kingdom and a dominion and glory of the Father? Do you believe in that divine person? And when Jesus asked him, do you believe in that, the you is emphatic, it's emphasized. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Though your parents may not believe, though the Pharisees may not believe, though everybody around you may not believe, here's the key question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you trust Him? Do you believe in Him? Have you placed your faith in the Son of Man? Really, that is the central key question, is it not? Isn't that why John wrote the whole Gospel of John? So that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing in his name, you might have life in his name. That's the purpose that John was written. And so here you have Jesus asking this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Because that is the central key question. It is belief that translates you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is belief in the Son of Man that makes you from a child of Satan into a child of God. It is belief in the Son of Man which is the fruit of God regenerating and giving you a new heart. You must believe in the Son of Man. That's the key question. Why is it that Jesus went to this once blind man and revealed himself in this way? Because this once blind man did not yet understand that the one who healed him was the Son of Man, a divine person, worthy of worship. The once blind man did not get that yet. And Jesus went to this man to reveal to him the true nature of who he is, so that this man might believe in the Son of Man. If the man had walked away from Jesus with sight, but without belief in Him as the Savior and the Messiah, what good would His sight have done Him? Anything? So what His eyes work? Really? Does that matter? If all that he gets from an encounter with Jesus is physical sight, but no spiritual understanding, and no salvation, and no forgiveness of sins, and no rescue from eternal damnation and wrath and judgment, if that's all he gets from Jesus, what good is His sight? What does it profit a man to gain his sight, but to lose his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his own soul? It doesn't profit him anything. Jesus went to this man because though he had sight, that wasn't all that he needed. This man needed to fully understand who Jesus was so that he might worship him and love him and obey him and believe upon him. So the man responds with his own question, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now, the man's question, the man answers a question with a question. Don't you love it when people do that? Somebody asks you a question? You ask them a question, they respond to your question with a question, that's what the man does. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? Now the man's question that he asked Jesus, who is he, is indicative of two things. First, that his own understanding of Jesus, even, even still, had a degree of ignorance to it. Now we have seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, that this man has progressed in his understanding of who Jesus is. It starts off early in the chapter, he just said he's a man. He refers to Jesus as a man. Later on, he confesses he's a prophet. Then later on, he's even arguing that he is a man who is sent from God, who does what he does by the power of God as an agent of God's power. Now, that's quite a progression in his understanding. The man understood that Jesus was a man, a prophet, somebody sent from God, somebody working under divine power. But listen, up until that point, though his understanding of Jesus is robust, and though his understanding of Jesus is technically orthodox, it is insufficient. It is insufficient. Because Jesus said in John 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It is not sufficient to trust in somebody who is a rabbi, a man, a prophet, one sent from God, or one who works under the power and the energy of God. What did Jesus say is necessary for salvation? You must believe that I am. For this reason I said to you, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, verse 28. Before Abraham was, I am. That's the key issue. This man's understanding of Jesus, though robust and orthodox, was insufficient. There's still a degree of ignorance in this man's understanding of who Jesus is. You can believe a ton of orthodox things about Jesus and still miss heaven. Do you know how you miss it? It's you believe a ton of orthodox things about Jesus, but you fail to understand and believe that he is the eternal God, the divine Son in human flesh. If you do not believe that and place your faith in him as that, you will perish in your sins everlastingly. That's the truth. The man still had a degree of ignorance about who Jesus was. And Jesus is going to fill that in so that this man has a full understanding of who Jesus is. The second thing that the man's question indicates is a willingness to do whatever it is that Jesus asked him to do. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is He? Just point to the one that you're speaking of. Whoever it is, point any direction. Identify that individual. Lord, and I will believe in him. The man was willing, he was grateful to Jesus for what Jesus had done, and the man is willing to do or believe anything that Jesus points him to believe. See, up to this point, the man's understanding of Jesus is that he was a prophet, that he spoke from God, that he came from God. So now when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? In the man's mind, he has to be thinking something. He has to be thinking this, likely. What he's thinking is, whoever it is that this prophet of God says is this divine person, I will go and I will believe Him and I will worship Him. Was this? Did this man understand that Jesus was the Son of Man? Or did he think that Jesus was somebody like John the Baptist, whose job in ministry it was to point to the Son of Man? Up to this point, the man did not know that. So up to this point, the man is willing to believe anything and whoever that Jesus points him to. That is really the heart. That is really an evidence of the heart of regeneration. Because as believers, we understand that. We are willing to obey out of gratitude. This man is so overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus has done that he is willing to obey Jesus, the Master. Wherever he points, whatever he says, i believe it and I will do it. Now listen, as believers we understand this, that every act of disobedience to Jesus Christ is an act of ingratitude. You realize that? Ingratitude is at the heart of it. It is motivated by ingratitude because we fail to understand who he is and what he has done and to really appreciate it. And in my act of disobedience at that moment, I am ungrateful to him for what he has done. And I am rebelling against him. If you struggle with obedience or if obedience is a burden to you or you hate it or you kick against it, you have to ask yourself two questions. Number one, am I truly saved? Am I a real believer or a false believer? And the second question you have to ask yourself is, am I really appreciating what Christ has done for me? And you spend enough time thinking about the weight of your sin and the weight of eternal wrath and what Jesus Christ has done to deliver you from that. And friends, you will not struggle with obedience. Obedience will become a joy. Because obedience is the act of a grateful heart. This man was filled with gratitude for Jesus, and he was willing to obey. So those are the two questions. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Lord, who is he? Now let's look at the answers. The answers, beginning in verse 37. Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Don't miss the irony of that statement. You've seen him, and he's the one speaking to you. Do you want to know who the Son of Man is? Who are you looking at? Don't forget the fact that you are looking and that you are seeing, right? The fact that you see is evidence enough of who the Son of Man is. Do you want to know who this divine being is? Who the Son of Man is? Do you see? Yeah? Who are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at the one who gave me... Si- oh, yes, my sight. I get it. He, I, do you see me? That's the evidence. You're looking at him. There's a note of irony there. You're looking at him, and he is the one speaking to you. This is one of the most direct revelations that Jesus gave to anybody in all four Gospels of who he was in his Messiahship. There was a, There's another example of a direct revelation like this, a straightforward declaration of who he is. And do you remember, we've already looked at it, do you remember who it was to? Do you remember whom it was to? It was to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? When she says, your fathers say on this mountain, our fathers say on that mountain, and so who's going to sort this out? We're just waiting for the Messiah to come. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. That was his declaration that he was the Messiah. Here he does it again to this man. The one you are looking at and the one who is speaking to you, that is the Son of Man. Speaking to, of himself in the third person, but a direct, clear, concise, straightforward, no equivocation, uh, identification of himself as the Messiah. Here's something interesting about both of those occasions. Both of those occasions, the revelation of Jesus in the clearest possible terms came to people who were outcasts from their society. The woman at the well for her sin, and this man because of his presumed sin, because he was a blind beggar. And everybody assumed that his blindness was due either to his sin or the sin of his parents. Both of these people to whom the Lord revealed himself in so clear and gracious a manner were outcasts from their society. They were nobodies in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the Jewish establishment. But when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, how did he speak to them? In veiled terms. In parables, in stories, in enigmatic language. When he spoke to the woman at the well and the man who was born blind, how did he speak to them? Clear, straightforward, and concise. And you know why? Because there's a biblical principle at play in both of these instances. And the biblical principle is this. To you, Jesus said to the disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to those who are outside, I speak in parables. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. And so that the judgment of God will come upon them. But to this man, a clear revelation of himself and his glory. To this man who was an outcast. To this man who was nothing. Friends, that is, the, that is the principle of how God reveals himself. It's not to the wise and to the noble. Do you realize that the people who have understanding of real truth and the people who have understanding of real wisdom and reality are not people who sit in front of television cameras and opine for an hour every night. They're not the people who sit behind radio microphones And talk to us through a box for three hours every day. They're not the people who own magazines and publish newspapers. Do you know who the people with the real wisdom and the real understanding of real reality are? They are the fools in the eyes of the world. The ones in this room. You and I. Because God has revealed himself to the simple. And he has hidden himself to the wise of the world. That's how God reveals himself. You see right here with this man. It's not to the wise that God comes with. It's not to the proud that God comes with that type of revelation. It's to the simple. It's to the nobodies. It's to you and I. It's not many wise, not many powerful. It's the foolish things in the eyes of the world that God makes known, the riches of his wisdom. So you and I have what all of the fools on TV do not have, true wisdom and true understanding of the true God and the truth. That's how God works. So that's the answer. Who is the Son of Man that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you've seen him. And he is the one who is talking with you. And now I want you to look at his response. He said, Lord, I believe. I believe. This man says, I believe. I see that. I understand it. I get it. And now he has something that up until this point he has never had. A belief in this man as the Son of Man, the divine person, a divine being, the Son of God. And now he believes that. Now you say, hold on a second, Jim. I understand that he is professing belief, but we've been with you since the beginning of John's Gospel, most of you have, and we've seen something over and over and over again in John's Gospel, and that is this, false believers, right? People who profess to believe, but really do not believe. They are people who have, they say they have belief, but their belief turns out to be just an intellectual assessment to the facts, and not a, a pursuing after and a holding on to Jesus Christ. How do I know that this man, though he says he believes, is not like the believers in John 2, who believed because of the signs, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man, and he knew that their belief was not genuine belief. How do we know that this man is not like the Jews in John chapter 6, who believed because of the signs, and when Jesus fed them, they came to him over and over again wanting more food, more signs. They were willing to take him by force and make him king. And they believed in him, didn't they? But when Jesus began to teach the crowd about what true belief looks like, And what true salvation is, they said, no, not for us. And they walked away from him and followed him no longer, John says, John chapter 6, verse 66. How do we know that this man's not like the believers back in John chapter 8, who believed on him, but then Jesus says, you're still children of the devil, locked in blindness, unbelief, hard-hearted, and then when Jesus revealed himself to them, they picked up, these believers, quote-unquote, picked up stones to stone him. How do we know that this man's belief is not like the fake belief of John 2, John 6, and John 8? How do we know that? Verse 38, and he worshipped him. That, my friends, is the sign of true, genuine saving faith. The contrast between this man, this one man, and the believers in John chapter 8 could not be more stark. This man believed, and what is the proof of his belief? What is the evidence that this man was saved? He worshipped Jesus Christ. That is the evidence. That is the sign of true saving faith. He was willing to bow the knee and worship Jesus Christ. This becomes the only man in John's Gospel to worship Jesus. He's not the only man in the New Testament. He is the only man in John's Gospel to worship Jesus. Others profess an understanding that Jesus was God, but this man is on record as being the only one in John's Gospel that worshipped Him. That is the evidence of true saving faith. What was the faith like in John 2 that was a fake faith? Ah, they were with Him for a period. How about John 6? When the teaching got tough, nah. In John 8, when he claimed that he was God, what did they do? Picked up stones to stone him. They argued with him. They contradicted him. But this man, Lord, I believe, and he bowed the knee, and he bowed down, and he worshipped Jesus Christ. Now listen, that is the only sane, rational, acceptable, and appropriate response to truth, to worship Jesus Christ. Every other response is irrational. Unbelief? is irrational. Excuse is irrational. The only rational and right response to the revelation of who Jesus is and the truth in Scripture is to worship Him as God. Now, if Jesus was not God, listen to this carefully, if Jesus was not God in human flesh, then accepting this worship from this man is the height of wickedness. Any man who was a good man but was not God would have stopped this man in his tracks and corrected him and pointed out that what he is doing is wrong and that he needs to worship God and God alone. But Jesus didn't do that. What does Jesus do? He accepts the worship because it was entirely appropriate for this man to worship him because he was God in human flesh. It was entirely appropriate for this man to worship him. And Jesus accepted it. He didn't reprove him. He didn't correct him. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't check him. He didn't stop it at all. This was natural. This is what true belief should have been like. This is what the Jews in John 2 should have done, worshipped him. This is what the Jews in John 6 should have done, worshipped him. This is what the Jews in John 8 should have done when they believed, was to worship him. But nobody else did that. Everybody else walked away. Everybody else turned away. This man worshipped Jesus Christ. Here's one final irony for you. Earlier in this chapter, verse 24, a couple weeks ago we saw this, when the Jews brought him in for that second round of questioning. Do you remember how they began the Inquisition? Give glory to God. They wanted him to give glory to God by denying Christ. He does give glory to God, doesn't he? How does he do it? Not the way they expected him. Verse 38, he worships Jesus. That's why John 5 says, if you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. And you cannot honor the Father if you do not honor the Son. Do you want to worship God? You worship God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the appropriate rational response to the truth and the revelation about who God is. Now, what are you and I to do? Let me offer you two things. First of all, I'm going to address some of this to some of you who may be here and you're, you're not believers. You have never trusted Christ for salvation in your life. You hear this is new to you. You hear the truth. You have heard it uh, today for this whole time and you want to turn away from it. You want nothing to do with it. You're going to, you come in here as an unbeliever and your intention is to leave here as an unbeliever. Let me be straight with you. The responsibility, the response that you have before God is to do this. You are to repent of your sin and to trust Christ for salvation. The only rational and right response to what you have heard and the truth about who Jesus is and the resurrection is for you to turn from your sin and cast your faith upon Jesus Christ as the God man. That is the right response to believe in him, to be like the blind beggar who, having seen what he has seen, having understood who Jesus is, says, Lord, I believe. Now, what must you believe? First of all, you must believe that you are a sinner because every person in this room has violated the law of God. You are like me. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a blasphemer. You're an adulterer at heart. You're a murderer at heart. You've dishonored your parents. You've coveted. You've stolen things. You have done every. violated all of the Ten Commandments and broke all of God's laws. And you stand condemned under the wrath of God. That's what Scripture says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that by your unbelief and by your sin, you stand right now under the wrath of God, condemned already because of your unbelief. You don't have to do anything from this point forward to condemn yourself. You are condemned already, John 3 says. And you are condemned already because of your sin. And the right and the good and the true and holy and righteous thing for a just and good God to do is to send you to hell, because that's what lawbreakers deserve. We don't like judges who let criminals go free. God is not a judge who is going to let criminals go free. God is not a judge who is going to pervert eternal justice just to turn a blind eye to your sin and to let you into heaven. You deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. But here's the good news. God has done something so that sinners who believe upon his Son might get into heaven forgiven and have their sins completely cleansed. You know what it is? God sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the second person of the Trinity, God himself in human flesh, to live a perfect life, to keep the law perfectly. He never sinned. He never violated the law of God. He lived a perfectly obedient life, and then He died a death of obedience on the cross, paying the sin price for all who will trust in Him. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for your sin. So God has punished sin on His Son. 1 Peter 2 says, He bore on His own body our sin. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our place, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He punished the sins of His people upon His Son so that... You, if you will repent and trust in Christ, can be forgiven of your sins by simply believing upon the Son and trusting in Him. But it means you have to agree with God that you're a sinner. You have to turn from that sin. That's what repentance is. It's confessing it, acknowledging, I deserve God's wrath. I'm turning from sin. I'm done with sin. And you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, without which you will not be saved. You will not be saved if you do not repent. Christ will not save you from sin that you will not let go of. And you will not be saved without belief. You must repent and you must believe. Listen. This is not an invitation. This is God's command to you. If you do not do this, you will perish everlastingly. I promise you that. This is not an invitation. It is a command. Repent and believe the gospel. And God will forgive your sins. He will cleanse your conscience. He will grant you eternal life. He will take you to heaven to be with Him. He will adopt you as your child and He will give you a new life and a new heart. That's God's promise to you. If you ignore this command and you disobey this command and will not believe, that you will perish in that unbelief. Because that is exactly what you want. And you will get what you want. A Christless eternity. You will get the very thing that you desire. Now for those of us who are saved, what is our response to the truth and to this blind man? Having believed, our response is to do exactly what the blind man did. To worship Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the appropriate object of the Christian's worship. We bow before him. We worship God in Christ. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Savior, and we yield to him obedience and worship because that is what he deserves. We understand that he is God, so we are not like the false believers of John 8, picking up stones to stone him. We are not like the believers of John 6 who turn away in unbelief. We are like this man, born blind, having been given sight. We bow the knee, and we worship and obey Jesus Christ because it is our joy and delight to do so because he is our God, and he is our king, and he is risen from the dead. And this is where the resurrection comes into it, friends. The resurrection is God's vindication, that the claims of His Son were not the ravings of a lunatic or a madman. They're not the say- sayings of an imposter. God has declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead in the power of the Spirit, Romans one four. By that resurrection, God has vindicated His Son and raised Him up and presented Him and made Him both Lord and Christ. And so we worship Him, we obey Him, and we love Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for what You have done in the hearts of those who belong to You in changing our hearts and and giving us eyes to see so that we might come from darkness to light. Thank you for such a precious Savior. Thank you, Father, that your word is clear about what our response should be to these truths. And we ask, Lord, for those who sit here today who are not your children yet, that you would convict their hearts and show them their desperate need for a Savior. May they hear the words of the message of your word and see this opportunity that is before them and repent and place their faith in the risen Son, lest they see His wrath on Judgment Day. It is our desire, God, that You would bring sinners to Yourself, that You would call them, that You would draw them, that You would bring them to You and grant them eternal life, so that You might be receive glory, and that the Son might receive the full reward for His suffering. We thank You in Christ's name for what You have given to us on this day, for the hope that we have. We thank You that You have filled our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for Your Son. And it is our joy to honor You, Father, by worshiping Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray